0: Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia and here's my co-host Morgan.
1: Hello. So
0: this week we're talking about The Shape of Water, which is a monster romance movie from director Guillermo del Toro and his co-writer Vanessa Taylor. Um, Sally Hawkins stars as Eliza, a mute janitor who works at a government research facility in the 1960s. One day she finds a mysterious creature in one of the labs and they gradually become friends and fall in love. And kind of like all of del Toro's work, it combines several genres and has this rich political subtext. Um, It's out at the moment on limited release in the US, but since some listeners won't have had a chance to see it yet, uh, we're going to kind of avoid major spoilers until the end and then we'll kind of discuss the ending a bit um, at the end of the podcast with another warning. I saw this movie like two months ago, so it's not super fresh in my mind. But I love it both because it's just wonderfully well-executed and original and also because it's like perfectly catering to my interests because I really (laughs) like Guillermo del Toro as a filmmaker and I really like romance and I really like genre movies and I love when things have political messages. I'm like, this is everything I need. Morgan just saw this this week, so she will remember it potentially better than me.
1: Yes, I saw it like a week and a half ago, I think, at MoMA where I see lots of movies and he was there for Q&A after, which was of course, a delight because he is because a wonderful, is
0: very a delight. Clever, funny man.
1: Yes, and is incredibly eloquent talking about his work, so it's always interesting to get to hear him speaking. I actually find him talking often I liked this movie quite a bit, but I kind of find him speaking about his work more interesting. Yeah, he's than like he's his known work. for
0: being he's one of the few directors who Really likes to do DVD commentaries. He literally tells studios, "I want to do a DVD commentary for this movie,"
1: which is unheard of. Yes, <laughs> very, very unusual. So I think we should start actually with you talking a little bit about Del Toro because I believe that you recently watched like all of his movies. Yeah. For another assignment,
0: <laughs> I'm I'm like allegedly meant to be doing a BBC radio show just about his career at some point. I don't know if it's still on because they haven't called me back. Call me, BBC. But I was like, this is a great excuse to watch or re-watch his entire filmography because he is one of the few directors where I've seen everything he's made. And it. I just, I just love him. You know, listeners probably vaguely familiar with him. He's done a mixture of really mainstream Hollywood blockbuster type stuff and also independent movies and usually they are in some way monster films so his Hollywood movies are he did Hellboy 1 and 2, he did Blade 2 and uh, Pacific Rim so it's like a couple of franchises and then one that he made up himself with his co-writers and then in terms of his independent work like his first movie is this film called Kronos which Like when he initially started his career he was this huge film buff and he worked as a critic and then he was like I want to make this film but first I need to learn all about special effects so he is one of the few kind of genre film directors who really is like a technician I think that he and James Cameron are their two really well-known directors who have this genuine passion for special effects and um, they're kind of opposite ends of the spectrum because obviously James Cameron is a maniac with a billion dollars on every film who just wants to make Avatar (sighs) He has a very specific vision, which doesn't really interest me, but, you know, you've got to respect his technical ability. Um, Whereas Guillermo del Toro, he was like a makeup artist. He made loads of models. He was inspired by kind of mid-20th century monster B-movies, and you can really see that in his films. Like his first movie, Kronos, that he worked on for years and years and years. It's mostly Spanish language. It's about like a grandfather who becomes a vampire, and it's kind of this addiction narrative, and the main characters are this old man and his granddaughter. It's absolutely wonderful. And then after that, he kind of went on to make like he made a, a Hollywood movie called Mimic, which is like a famously weird studio situation where he was trying to do this like cool artistic film, and the studio kept giving him like incredibly terrible input so it's like this you know it's this dumb movie with like chase scenes with giant bugs in the New York subway system and he was like I want my main character to be he wanted his main character to be played by the boss from Brooklyn Nine-Nine Andrew Brower um, and he was like yeah he should be the romantic lead and also I want like the secondary sidekick character to be gay and Hollywood was like it's 1998 and we're not having a gay character or an interracial couple and also this movie has to be about cockroaches now so it has like the quintessential artistic clash experience and i think that kind of informs his work afterwards like he's very individual and he doesn't really shy away from his visions so you know, he's done these other more mainstream blockbusters, but he's also like he's constantly rumored to be doing like, oh, he's going to do like a Batman spin off or something. And it's like he literally just says no to all of these things because they're not going to allow him to do what he wants or he doesn't care. So it's like, well done for living the artist's dream. Uh,
1: <laughs> but He um, also made... I'm really amused that you didn't mention this because it's the thing he's best known for. (laughs) Aside from Pacific Rim, he made Pan's Labyrinth, which won um, the Foreign Language Oscar in 2006 um, and was a huge sensation at the time. It made a ton of money, which is unusual for foreign language films. Uh, And that was the first thing I saw by him many years ago.
0: I mean, if you've not seen Pan's Labyrinth and The Devil's Backbone, which is a film he made, it's like a ghost story story. Set in an orphanage during the Spanish Civil War. Like, those two films are masterpieces. They are like some of the best films of the past 20 years or so. You need to see them.
1: Uh, I do not love Pan's Labyrinth, personally. <laughs> I haven't seen it since I was 16, so maybe my pain changed. I am not a huge fan of his films in general, actually. It really isn't
0: too bad that we are worst enemies.
1: I know. It's interesting, actually, because I definitely did not love Pan's Labyrinth at all. And I would be interested to watch it again because I think I probably like it slightly more, but I don't think I would love it. But like I enjoyed Pacific Rim a lot. I've only saw it once and didn't have any impulse to see it a second time, which is definitely not the response that a lot of people on the internet had. And I don't mean that as an insult to the film. Like I really enjoyed watching it, but it wasn't something that I saw and then thought, like, I have to watch this 17 times. My favorite of the ones of his that I've seen is definitely Crimson Peak. And uh, that's very much catered to my interest it's about like 19th century sort of gothic stuff and I have a degree in Victorian literature and he really knows um, what
0: to do with Tom Hiddleston
1: ex- yes exactly it. <laughs> um we, before we recorded we were just talking about Tom Hiddleston and he knows precisely how to use him in the best possible way and I think this movie is very good but I think that even in Crimson Peak, which is a film like I've seen multiple times and definitely will watch again many times as kind of comfort viewing, and that's not an insult to it either. Like that's a good thing that a film can function that way. He for me, there's a bit of a style over substance issue that he has when I watch his films, in that he is very much technician and that there's a lot happening visually that I don't always find immensely pleasing. Like it's 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 very very stylized and that the emotional stuff can sometimes seem not all there i think that the shape of water of the ones that i've seen so that's four i guess is the most kind of emotionally rich and i think that that has a lot to do with sally hawkins who plays the main character who is an absolutely astonishing actress i think she's one of the best actresses working uh a lot of people listening may not have heard of her she's this English independent film yeah. actress. She does, she was she does in... like
0: a kind of a combination of, she's done quite a bit of comedy. If you saw Paddington recently, she is the mum in Paddington. <laughs> but, um, Wonderful. I know. I've not seen the new Paddington movie, but I'm definitely looking forward to it. But she does, you know, British independent films. She did uh, the two Sarah Waters adaptations, so Tipping the Velvet and uh, whatever the name of the show is that then became The Handmaiden.
1: Fingersmith. Fingersmith,
0: yeah. I think, um, yeah. and she's But she's also done more mainstream stuff, like Made in Dagenham, which is one of these sort of like, oh, a wholesome British indie drama about unions. She's, she's <laughs> Basically, she's very comedic, but she also does very intensive, serious drama roles. And because she's not what Hollywood considers to be like a super babe, she's not really cast in leading women roles, but she's also luminously beautiful, so... <laughs>
1: Well, her big breakout was this Mike Lee film, Happy-Go-Lucky, in, I think, 2008. And I haven't seen it since then. I desperately need to watch it again, and I will soon. And it is an absolutely wonderful film that I would recommend to anybody listening to this. And the trick of that movie, which I remember people talking and writing a lot about at the time, is that she plays this unbelievably optimistic, happy character and she doesn't go through she doesn't really have an arc in the movie right like she doesn't become cynical she doesn't have something really horrible happen to her I mean like stuff happens in the movie and it's not all great but the arc of the movie is kind of other people in the film and the audience having this realization about her and about life which is really fascinating because that's not how movies work usually and she is just so good in it like I cannot Describe how good she is in this film. And she won a Golden Globe for it, I think, and then didn't get nominated for an Oscar, and it was like a crime. Like, I was one of the most. I've been. I was so mad about it. Like, I've rarely been that mad about, like, Oscar stuff. Like, obviously, it's all silly, but this was. It was absurd. Like, I. It was just a farce. And I think that's her best role that I've seen, but I think that she's also astonishing in this. So she doesn't speak, she just signs the whole time. And she just conveys. So much. And she's also very much the central
0: character. It's not a movie yes. like La La Land or something where you have equal screen time between the two romantic leads. Like we were talking about this with Call Me By Your Name, which is very kind of character focused. And the romance in this is like it's very much from Eliza's perspective like you really don't get very much carriage development for the creature, which is like my only criticism for this film. <laughs> but, yes, um, <laughs> I had some problems yeah, with which is, that, which, which is a a moment. Um, but yeah, like the whole thing, it's not just a romance, like it's about her life. And, you know, she has this job where she's completely overlooked because she's working as a cleaner and everyone at this uh, lab is doing their kind of serious, oh, I'm investigating aliens in the Cold War kind of, uh, kind of jobs. And she's just this invisible person who lives in an apartment by herself and has two friends who are also ignored by the world but you just get so much richness of character and like so much emotional depth and you see so much of her life you know the food she eats the music she listens to the way she decorates her house and in like a lesser film she'd be kind of like a quirky protagonist but she's not it's so deep and you also get like much more of her sexuality than i think is usual yes they literally have her like masturbating in the first scene yeah. And it's like, oh my god, this movie is starting with like a 40-year-old woman masturbating and then going to work with a packed
1: lunch. Like, oh, holy. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, I think I that was one of the things I appreciated the most about the movie um is that it is very upfront about that and he's talked about that a lot too that sex is just a normal thing that people do and so it's a normal part of this movie and It's very much, I think, a movie for grown-ups, which isn't to say that, like, a teenager couldn't like this movie. I definitely think that there will be a lot of teenagers who like this movie a lot, and it's not, like, inappropriate or scandalous in any way, right? she's not, like, an ingenue, you know? Yes.
0: She seems like someone who's in her late 30s.
1: Yeah, and I think that she's treated very seriously with a lot of respect, and her best friend played by Richard Jenkins is this middle-aged gay man who also is kind of at this point in his life where his professional wife also isn't going well. He doesn't really have much of a personal life except for this friendship with her. And there is this sense of just kind of like middle-aged ennui, I think. And I think that's quite unusual in a romance. And I liked that.
0: Yeah, when it's not a midlife crisis.
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously you have like sort of Judd Apatow type romantic comedies about middle aged people, like of course, like the Steve Carell starring type movies, right? Or like Paul Rudd, and like that's fine. But but with this,
0: like the problems they have are external because you get the impression that Eliza is intrinsically like a happy person who really knows how to enjoy art and eating food and dancing and that sort of thing. Even though she is, you know, she wants to get laid or whatever. Um, Yes, she has like a full life, you know, and her problems are that she's got this job which is basically just like menial labor and there is no way for her to ever reach past that in terms of her career and then Richard Jenkinson's character Giles he's an illustrator and basically you know strongly implied that he's been fired because he's gay like we won't go into details because of spoilers until later on but um the thing he's working on throughout the whole film is he's doing a freelance job where he's drawing this poster, which is very classic kind of illustrated mid 20th century poster selling Jello or something. And it's this smiling, happy family. And he's constantly just getting feedback, being like, oh, you need to make the family like more cheerful. And it's basically like a propaganda poster for the nuclear family. And he's this (laughs) lonely guy who really just wants to fall in love and has like screwed financially because of his sexuality. And it's the 1960s. So...
1: Yeah. Early 1960s. Yeah, it's
0: 1962. It's a very specific year. They have it set during the Kennedy administration, very carefully chosen when to put this in the kind of Cold War. There's lots of Russian spy antics as well.
1: Yeah, so I liked that tone a lot. But I think the main problem with the film is that the relationship between those two characters I found very moving and very convincing and real and Richard Jenkins also is an amazing actor and is just so good in this movie and I think he's definitely made it nominated for an Oscar which is very pleasing to me but I found the romance between her and the creature as I believe he is referred to in the movie much less emotionally rich and that is because the creature I think is kind of treated largely like an object by the story i was listening to my favorite film podcast on the site called the film experience i'll link to it and they were talking about this and i think they both it was two two critics talking about this and i think they both kind of liked the movie but had a lot of criticisms of it and i I was listening to it and i was like oh yeah like i kind of felt this too that they were talking about his movies in general and one of them this professor nick davis was saying like it's really interesting that he del toro is really interested in monsters obviously he makes all these movies about them but they are often kind of treated as objects in them like crimson peak yes crimson peak is a different kind of story because there are it's more focused on the human characters right but my main critique of that film is that it has these ghosts but the ghosts are i don't think the ghosts do enough in that story which is like a different conversation to have but in this the creature has to be passive for part of the story because like he's being contained in this facility by these like horrible men who are torturing him right but even when she eventually breaks him out which i don't think is really a huge spoiler because like pretty clear if that's what's going to wind up happening from like minute one of the film he doesn't have a point of view no in the film and it's all about her and i think the movie winds up Mostly working because she is just so unbelievable that you're so wrapped up in her and what she's experiencing that you just go along with it. Like, when I was watching this movie, I was so gripped and like I was really tense when there were sort of dangerous things going on. And I still like it. Like, I definitely would recommend it. And I think, especially, like people who are listening to this podcast will really <laughs> like this movie. But one, like, it hasn't stuck with me in a big way. Like, I haven't been thinking about it the way I been thinking about calling you by your name for instance and I think that that is largely because as a romance like you were saying earlier but sort of comparing those two films there's not a ton there like there are a couple scenes or maybe really just one scene right at the beginning where they're first interacting with each other it's really charming and then it's sort of like and now they're in love and I was like oh okay I mean,
0: I found it very like, easy I mean admittedly I was already i'm like the captive audience for this because i was like yeah del taro's doing a movie where someone falls in love with a fish man this is great and like i love doug jones who is the actor who plays him he is also um saru in star trek at the moment and he kind of famously has done a lot of monster roles for del Toro. so like he is the ultimate person to be playing this character and i think the film does a really good job of illustrating why the Fishman is attractive like he looks good and also you get it from Eliza's viewpoint you can tell that she's like attracted to him and they don't belabor the point of how weird that situation is which I think is the right decision yes. and it's kind of almost like he has the role of the manic pixie dream girl because he's like his role and existence is facilitating her escape from this life almost he's kicking her into gear to rebel which is what she should have been doing all along but it's like obviously no one does ever rebel against the system unless there's like a really powerful emotional reason to do so Um, which is kind of the message of a lot of his films, like in general. I found it very easy to like ship that relationship and it didn't really concern me at all while I was watching it. It was just more afterwards. It's not like I was like, oh, that's not as good in retrospect, which I think is the kind of feeling that Morgan had. It was more just, I wish I had more. It's kind of that fanfic feeling. And I'm Mm -hmm. very much looking forward to getting, There's two Shape of Water books. So one of them is there's a novelization of it but it's not kind of, I don't think it's the typical kind of cheesy like Star Wars style novelization. I think it's like he and like a novelist developed the story together when they were kind of initially discussing the concept there's the events of the movie but there's like a lot more backstory and stuff and there's also going to be a companion book which Del Toro has done for a couple of other movies the one for Crimson Peaks is meant to be really good but he has all these kind of extensive character files for all the characters so I'm like this is definitely one of those ones where my love of tie-in materials is going to really benefit me <laughs> I don't think you should ever judge a film on those terms because that's not how art works <laughs> but um I'm, I'm looking forward to finding out more about my beloved Fishman. um <laughs> And I I just, I think, I feel like I have to mention how entertaining it's been to see. um, I didn't actually read them because I don't want to waste my life with that stuff, but there's been a couple of think pieces from men and like social media posts as well, where it's just like, it's just like either, either being like, why are women attracted to this monster? Or being like, this is just really sexist. Why are you like sexualizing women and partnering up with a monster? And it's just like, I mean, I think... First of all, like even when this film was announced in the trailer and stuff, there is a certain demographic of people, especially women, who are definitely just here for this. They're like, yes, I wanna see the fish fucking movie. That is what we're here for. It's like the monster is attractive, right? It's not even that niche, you know. It's like anyone who's seen the reaction that people have to Beauty and the Beast, it's a pretty like <laughs> it's a pretty common viewpoint. And it doesn't mean that people are gonna go out and like launch into a world of bestiality. It's like a fantasy movie. But also in the film, the creature has like a very specific emotional and political role in the story and the protagonist's life. And if you have like an ounce of ability to notice how stories are told, it's pretty easy to see what the appeal is. (laughs) You know, it's this wonderful, sensitive person who doesn't, like they spell it out very obviously in the film. She literally tells like her friend he doesn't understand that i'm incomplete or something like that you know the whole point is that she is overlooked and oppressed and she also is like by other people's standards silent because most people can't speak sign language um there's this wonderful scene i mean not wonderful horrible but there's this gross scene in the movie where the military guy who's in charge of the research facility who's played brilliantly by michael shannon whom we adore uh, but he is basically harassing her but not in a way where he's even like that into her he's just like a creep you know who's just seen her and has taken a liking to her appearance but he just really likes the fact that she can't talk because he just you know he treats his wife like a sex doll you know it's just such a perfect illustration of the misunderstanding for her because we're like no she has this really strong personality and is wonderful at communicating and he's just someone who can't talk back and the point is that like the creature would like never even consider that because the creature doesn't communicate verbally either.
1: Yeah, all the men reacting in the wrong way to this movie are very funny. It's to me. also
0: considering the sheer volume of movies that are about like sex bots. It's
1: yes. like literally this yes. week the
0: trailer for this movie, Alita: Battle Angel. It's like an anime adaptation, and the main character is one of these waif-like, sexy android girls, but she's got like huge anime eyes, so she looks like a sexy baby, and it's like, look, if you fuckos can make this movie for like $200 million, you can let us have the fish film. (laughs) Come on.
1: (laughs) Well, also, like, I don't personally, I'm going to confess this on air, don't find the fish man particularly attractive, but like, it's fine. It doesn't matter. I mean, That's not robot- the point.
0: But it's also like... like, it's how it works in context, right? Right. Like Watching Hannibal, I'm not like, wow, I'd love to spend some intimate time with a guy who eats human flesh, you know? <laughs> but like, when it's like a story and you're shipping the two characters, that is the function of romance. And that's like the difference between, you know, watching a movie from the 90s where Matthew McConaughey takes a shirt off a lot, where the kind of part of the appeal is you can put yourself in that position. It's like, I'm not necessarily like imagining myself in the possession of being like oh yeah i'd love to go on a date with the fish guy or dry <laughs> guy. it's just <laughs> like you know there's an appeal and if you don't understand it then you're foolish
1: <laughs> yes um but i think uh, getting back to my issue with yes. it that scene with michael shannon where he's like, coming onto her in a super gross way, I think is one of the better scenes in the film. It's so creepy, and certainly in the current cultural moment, I think resonated a lot. Not that it wouldn't at any time, but it was definitely, like, mmm, yeah. Um, But I don't think there's... Like, certainly you have a contrast between him and the, you know, rest of her life and her romance with the fish man, but you don't really see him like hearing her right so the best scene in the movie i think everyone would agree is the scene where she is explaining to richard jenkins what you were just talking about like he doesn't see me is incomplete or whatever and she's she's like signing this to richard jenkins and then making him repeat it back to her so that she's sure that he understands but it's basically a device so that you're hearing it spoken aloud and then also seeing her sign it. And it's just uh, incredible. Like, it's just unbelievable moment in the film. And um, you're getting both these actors basically giving this performance. And I just thought it was so moving. But you're not really seeing any of that happen. And I kind of wonder, and this was a point that, um, that other podcasts made too, which I really do recommend listening to, is that there's so much plot in the movie. Yeah that there's not really enough space for the relationship. And I found the plot, watching it, totally engaging. And as I said, like, when there was sort of heist stuff going on or, like, the spy stuff and, like, anyone was in danger, I was on the edge of my seat. Like, I was completely gripped and, like, nervous. And, you know, when when something went well, I was like, oh, I mean, the God. This is
0: honestly a very... I mean, it's a central component. But, like, in terms of screen time, it really doesn't have as much... So watching it I think there's like a couple of different interpretations you can have for that and the most obvious one is just taking it at face value and being like this is a really great romance you know we haven't got much screen time but we've all seen Disney films we can just accept that they're in love and the other one that we can interpret is the kind of slightly cynical version the kind of manic, manic pixie dream girl version um, which I don't like it's not what I personally believe but it's definitely something I've thought about when thinking about the movie which is that maybe the creature doesn't feel that strongly towards her, you know? And he means he's become, like, this huge, like, towering presence in her life, and he's, like, changed her life, and she really wants to help him. And, like, he obviously likes her, but we have no idea with her how much he understands her on a personal level, because they don't really illustrate that.
1: I don't think that that's probably what he was intending. No, it
0: wasn't, and it's also not what I it's... think. Like, I definitely, that's not how I would, like, interpret it, but I think that is a way that you can look at the lack of screen time for their personal relationship
1: i mean we can't really go into spoilers but given the end i don't think that really plays <laughs> like like we'll explain more later but i think that the ending pretty clearly confirms the two-way nature of the relationship but Because he doesn't have a point of view, you are right in saying that it's very hard to know. He doesn't have any idea what is going on. Like Michael Shannon has found this creature in like the Amazon and then brought it back to the United States to sort of like do tests on it, which is obviously, you know, there's an allegory there. And um, then they get into this big debate about whether they should keep it alive and keep doing tests or kill it and sort of do an autopsy on it. And like this thing is from the rainforest and now is in this facility in Baltimore. So of course it doesn't have any idea what the fuck is going on. And like one person is being nice to it. But I think there was a lot that could have been explored there that the movie just like doesn't do. And even though I did find it really enjoyable and I thought that a lot of it was good that I thought that was a big lapse, especially given that basically every other character in the movie is given a lot. Like Michael Stuhlbarg, who plays um, one of the other scientists at the facility, gets like numerous scenes by himself. Yeah. And I love Michael Stuhlbarg, but I don't know that that was strictly necessary. He has this whole like, subplot. Necessary. See, I think we should talk right. a bit about,
0: I think, both the politics, which I loved. I mean it wasn't really subtle, but it also wasn't like banging you in the face with the politics. It was like a nice yeah. balance, I think. Like you can. Yes, I and agree. There's like a lot of kind of visual stuff that I think on Rewatches I'm gonna pick up on more. But um it's this combination of you've got the Cold War politics and it's set during, you know, the Halcyon days of the Kennedy administration. And also you've got this just great classic sci-fi concept. Um, so I wrote this in my review, which we'll link in the uh, in the show notes, but The introductory scenes of this movie were so perfect for me. Like, apart from the introduction where you just have Sally Hawkins by herself, but then when you see um, Octavia Spencer and Sally Hawkins working together at this lab, and it's one of these rare moments where I just get that feeling of, you know, feeling represented. (laughs) Um, And it was kind of similar to, like, in Wonder Woman, where I don't feel like in Wonder Woman I identify with any of the characters at all because they're all super impressive. But in this, (laughs) um, the characters are basically normal people right and they are working in what we would just think of as shitty jobs um and they don't have any kind of opportunities to advance and it's also like you watch that and you're like in 1962 there's a pretty good chance that I would be doing like if i if i'm imagining myself in a sci-fi scenario I would not be the astronaut, I would not be like the one woman who has the guts to burn her way through NASA and manage to get this impressive job and be the only lady in the office like Agent Carter, you know. I would be the person who would get into this scenario by being the cleaner. Um, And it's it's such a great kind of understanding of how this genre just has all these little holes that are never explored because the people who are making films specifically are almost always white men, right? Right and although yeah. people fucking love underdog stories most of these movies don't interpret underdog the same way that like you should be interpreting underdog because it's always just like some guy who's like from a weird background or is getting bullied by the military because he's a nerd you know and in this the nerdy guys are basically either neutral or they're the bad guys right and like the villain is very classic michael shannon's character plays quite a similar villain to ones we've seen in other del toro movies like particularly pan's labyrinth which has this other kind of Authoritarian, very masculine, like handsome, upstanding man of the community, military guy is the villain. And this one is the same thing. He's an absolute asshole, but he is what the world sees as like a patriotic American hero, you know? And you can really see like the visual difference and also kind of all the racial and gender imbalances that are going on there. It's just like a fun, smart twist on the really classic kind of sci fi setting you can imagine from like a million 1950s B movies. And then you just have yeah. this like zany subplot with a bunch of Russian spies and Michael Stolberg.
1: <laughs> Having quite a year. There are also, there's a lot with eggs in both this and Call Me you, By Your Name. Yeah. So it's just some interesting synergy. It's a good synergy. year for
0: eggs. Like, I really like it when movies have food. I mean, obviously, loads of movies have food, but I feel like one thing that Del Toro is really good at, and specifically in this film, is kind of showing this well-rounded way of life So the government research facility place is like really sterile and unpleasant. Everyone who works there is like a white guy in a lab coat and Michael Shannon's character is this obsessively controlled person where like the only thing you ever see him eat is this hard candy that he's chewing on and is really obsessed with and thinks of it as like a kind of a weird status symbol and he's just cruel and doesn't have a rich life you know we see his home life and he's got this perfect 1960s nuclear family in the suburbs with like a beautiful wife who wears these puffy dresses and two kids and he's like really excited to get his new Cadillac and then when you see the other characters lives Octavia Spencer's life not that great her husband seems a bit shit but she also like is someone who is able to like stay cheerful even though you're not in a great situation Um, and then with Giles and Eliza especially you know, you see like all the food they're eating and the music they listen to. They both really like movies together. They live above a movie theater. Their life is so full of art. And it's just this kind of illustration of how you can rebel against the system in small ways, even when you're not an action hero or something. Um, which I think is like it really resonates kind of at the moment, especially.
1: Yeah, I thought that again, like that relationship between Giles and Eliza was definitely my favorite part of the film. And I found it really moving and compelling and there's a moment where he kind of realizes that she is the most important person in his life and it's obviously not romantic but it's just really meaningful and I found that really affecting and effective storytelling because his romantic prospects are not good right like it's just the reality of his situation but he is more happy than he thinks he is because of this relationship and obviously it's not like a perfect life because certain societal things are just shitty but there is something good in his life and I it was just I found that very nuanced and really compelling the stuff with Michael Shannon and Octavia Spencer's home lives I found slightly less persuasive and with Michael Shannon in particular less compelling like I wasn't sure why we needed those scenes
0: I mean Michael Shannon's thing was quite over the top.
1: Right and like you can just have him in the office being a monster and that's you get it. Like there's the sex scene with him and his wife and I think it's in there to sort of stand as a contrast to the much better sex (laughs) that Sally Hawkins is having but I don't think it needed to be in the movie and the stuff with Octavia Spencer I just didn't find um super it didn't read quite right to me and i realized that i'm nitpicking but i'm nitpicking because i did mostly like the movie but then it felt like he wasn't spending his time on necessarily the right things and then that is an important thing when you're making a movie is like you have to spend your time on the right things and because there is this gaping kind of hole in the center of it for me You'd, I then look at the rest of the film and think, okay, well, what? how did you sort of apportion out this stuff? And then some of the things are were very perplexing to me. Like, there aren't very many scenes between Eliza and the creature at all. The ones that there are, I think, are really great. And then there's this scene of, like, Michael Shannon having bad sex with his wife, and I was like, I just don't care about this at all. (laughs) Like this is not what I am watching this movie to see. Like this is I mean he's a bad man and I'm I don't know uh, if
0: it was necessary to include it, but I also don't have a problem with it being there and it wasn't something that was like boring me when I was watching. And I think even when I rewatch I'm still gonna be like, it's all great. Even though I want more like Monster (laughs) and Romance time.
1: Well the thing about that is like do we necessarily yes, we should have movies that are empathetic to, like, bad people. I mean, that's, I totally believe that. And I have no... I mean, my favorite movie is There Will Be Blood, which is, like, a horrible man. Um But, like, I just didn't find it massively compelling. Like, he tries to make the, like, bad fascist man three-dimensional. Right? And I just am not that he interested in that. He
0: doesn't... I mean, I, it's not like they're like, oh, he's sympathetic. I think it's it's something that people really need to have kind of hammered home because it's extremely difficult to really kind of to really take on board the fact that good-looking respected authority figures are frequently terrible you know especially if you're watching you know a movie because the whole Hollywood complex is all about just getting a bunch of good looking people who are really rich and powerful and making <laughs> you think they're really sympathetic. Huh? Uh, so in this it's like it is not it's like the least subtle part of the movie is Michael Shannon. Or rather yes. his character. Um but I I kind of feel like that's almost necessary. Um, like because You know, we do see, obviously, blockbuster movies where there's like, oh, there's like an evil colonel, but it's always like such a two-dimensional concept of like, one, this person is like an asshole, whereas in del Toro movies, when he kind of introduces these authoritarian villains, and also it's like, he's very cognizant of the racial aspects, like he is very clearly intentionally choosing like a handsome white man, Um, but it, it just seems worthwhile to me, even though it is like, by comparison, like a little bit less mature than other parts of the film.
1: Well, I think I'm arguing the opposite thing, which is that I don't think I don't care. <laughs> like when he's he was talking about that in the the Q and A afterwards, and that he I guess when he was offering the part to Michael Shannon, Michael Shannon's like question was, is it the bad guy because he's played so many bad guys, and I think probably gets offered that a lot, and I think must be a bit tired of it. And it was actually funny that seeing like reviews or tweets or whatever about this movie everyone's being like, Michael Shannon playing an incredibly Michael Shannon character. And I was like, he actually does other things. Like, did none of you watch midnight special. And like, he was, did a, you know, play on Broadway a couple of years ago that I saw where he's not doing this at all. Like he has a lot of range, but that's kind of the Yeah, I don't feel like I've even seen see. him as that
0: many villains. So I guess I don't have that stereotype in mind, even though obviously I, I'm aware of his role in Batman. Well,
1: he was in uh, Yeah. I was going to say he was I in uh, man of steel, but anyway, Del Deltour is going on and on about like this, like rich inner life of this guy that he's concocted. That I don't feel like I truly. I really mean, I was feel like seeing. he kind
0: of has to say that he's advertising his film.
1: Yeah, no, I know, but like he seemed like he believed it, and I just don't care. Like that, your mileage may vary, but I don't really. This is like the the New York Times, like Nazis are people thing
0: right like uh, yes i mean yes and no right because i really think that the whole nazis are people thing is like being sympathetic whereas this film is obviously the opposite of sympathetic but i think people sometimes need to be walked through the mindset behind why people like this are in power the relationship between this kind of patriotic american thing and the fact that that's maybe not good
1: yeah, but there was so much of it in a way that I found that was so broad, as you were saying, that I don't think it added very much to the film. And I'm not saying that like every scene he had, he was in, he should have just been like cackling evilly. <laughs> like, and I thought he was really good because he's amazing. But I just felt like it was a bit of a waste of resources as far as time went. And it's also like such a cliche. To have the, like, they look, it's like a perfect, I know it's 1962, but it's very much like the perfect 50s family. But he's not satisfied. Like, yeah, <laughs> okay, I, I get it. And I just, yeah, it was not doing it for me. I'm
0: so offended um, on behalf of my beloved movie. <laughs> but on that <laughs> note, we should probably discuss the ending of the film and wrap up the podcast. Yes.
1: Well, why don't you just describe? A little bit. Okay, so. What happened? Yeah,
0: so the film obviously, like, they manage to break the creature free of the facility, and there's kind of a long period where he is staying in Eliza's house, and they have to get these particular ingredients to add to his water to make sure he doesn't get sick, but obviously that's not a tenable position, and at some point they have to try and help him escape into the sea so he can swim back to South America. And the film ends with this standoff between Michael Shannon. And the monster and Sally Hawkins, basically, and it's kind of this—you know—it's it's a very kind of simple classic standoff, and it's really kind of wrapping up the whole themes of this film and so many other Del Toro films, which is like monsters are not necessarily monsters, and like the real monsters are humans. Classic, classic monster movie theme. But basically, at the at the end, Michael Shannon tries to shoot the monster. Michael Shannon actually gets killed not before he shot Sally Hawkins and she kind of falls into the water and we see her falling through the water and the creature kind of dies for her and the film leaves it like intentionally ambiguous whether she dies or whether you get this kind of happy ending where the monster heals her you know because he has this ability to heal people like he's got these kind of elemental powers um, and obviously as a happy-go-lucky person who loves romance, I'm obviously interpreting the happy ending where she survives and they go off and hang out to be fish people in the forest somewhere. But like realistically, she'd get shot and like fall into the water. So who knows? You can pick either one.
1: <laughs> I didn't... It, it had not occurred to me that it was ambiguous until you just said that. I, it seemed pretty straightforward well, to me. But I, like... I
0: thought because of the voiceover... Like, where they're like, oh, we can, I don't know really what happened, but we can choose to believe this sort of voiceover. But I mean, possibly it's just that I've been watching Black Sails continuously for the last six months, where like, the entire purpose of that show is continual narrative ambiguity, still. So...
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I who knows? I think it, most like, of us will a... be
0: interpreting this as a happy ending anyway.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a fairy tale yeah. story, right? Yeah. And obviously, like, original fairy tales were all about, like, people getting their hands chopped off but <laughs> and, like, dying in tragic ways. But the way it's set up, I think it doesn't really play if she dies. Yeah. Because um, I thought when she got shot, I well, I thought they were both going to die. And was like, wow, that's a weird ending to this film. <laughs> like, that's not the message I thought they were—he was going to be sending at all. And then that is not what happens. Um, but he's already demonstrated that he has like magical healing abilities. Yeah. So I think that that's in there to establish that he can do this. And also, the and f- framing a very- of the
0: film doesn't feel like it's the lead up to a tragic romance ending. No, and kind of not the whole message of the film is the way you win is not necessarily by achieving victory on the terms of the oppressors but just by being able to live and if they are able to live and like break free of that lifestyle then they've won regardless of whether michael shannon's dead or not which he is yes
1: um and there's a pretty clear shot of her getting gills um yeah I, i think she survives and i'm a i tend to go go down the negative root with you see i was movies. i was like
0: properly like rearing up for a fight at the beginning of this podcast because i was like morgan's gonna have the depressing interpretation it turns out no, you didn't even think it was
1: ambiguous i so. literally didn't <laughs> even occur to me this is opposed to when we talked about the end of children of men you were like he totally lives and i was like you are delicious. <laughs> <laughs> like that is 100 percent not what happens at the end of that movie and I, you are incorrect um no i think that this is a happy ending and I was satisfied. I was genuinely concerned when it seemed like they were going to die. I was like, "This is I do not like this." Um, but I thought it was a a good ending. I thought he actually could have played the fairy tale step up more in the film because it starts like that big time and then it ends like that big time. And obviously, it's a fantasy throughout, but you don't get as much of that. And of course, Pan's Labyrinth is is the same thing. See that one spoiler alert ends differently <laughs> <laughs> because it's about a different thing but like that's set up in a way that it's sad at the end but it's the right thing. Yeah, and also Pan's Labyrinth movie, right?
0: is an extremely dark film.
1: Right, exactly. And this doesn't have the same tone at all.
0: Yeah, I've not um, I've not seen Emily, but I've seen people comparing this film to Emily.
1: Yes, that hadn't occurred to me, but I think that's extremely apt and I know it's cool to like hate on Emily now because it's just become such a thing for so long but I, like many other teenagers who took French in high school, of course loved that film yeah, a I lot it when I was been old. yeah, <laughs> but I don't like i don't I think it's good um it's very of its time, certainly, but I don't think it's a bad movie to be compared to in this way. Like, there are definitely ways it it could be bad to be compared to Amelie, but I think this one, I think that that's, like, a compliment. At least, or at least I would read it that way. Maybe it wasn't intended that way. But it's got the same kind of um, stylization without being, like, massively over the top. And music. Yes. The music is great. Music is really, really good. I actually noticed it and I often have to take a couple times to really, like, notice and remember music in a film, unless it's really, really distinctive. I'm an extreme uh, music noticer, the... and I was very into it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all the technical stuff, obviously, was very impressive. It's going to get nominated for a ton of Oscars. Oh, he just um, he knows
0: how to make stuff look really good. <laughs> so see, much it's not always to my... It's not, design.
1: like, 100% to my taste. There's something about it that's, like, a little too slick no no (laughs) no
0: i really one of my favorite scenes in the film is just when eliza is daydreaming on the bus and it's just so evocative because like everyone knows like having a shitty commute and daydreaming there's the scene where she kind of reaches that like transitionary point in her relationship with the creature where she's fallen in love and the lighting from a street light outside kind of suddenly becomes really warm and shines in her face and Sally Hawkins is just so expressive and you're like
1: ah love <laughs> <laughs> huh. oh yeah she really is so good um i she's not going to win the oscar but if there were any justice she would she's wonderful hopefully she at least gets nominated this time if she doesn't again we'll just know that she's I mean this cursed, movie is getting so. real hyped it's yeah, well. but but yeah, it, no. I mean,
0: I don't yeah, I know.
1: It was has not been doing as well until the LA Film Critics and there are a lot of women in the in the hunt for that. So, it's not assured. We will certainly see you might be disappointed <laughs> on on Oscar morning. It's going to get a ton of technical nominations. Like that is where it will be just fine, but the big categories will be interesting. Yeah.
0: I mean, that, so this film we're going to finish now. But this film cost $19.5 million. Yeah. And all of the underwater stuff he did using non-water techniques. So it was just like a wind machine and people behaving like they were underwater and then some CGI stuff for like dust motes in the air.
1: With one exception. Yeah. One notable exception. Yeah. When they flood her bathroom, yes. which is a great scene. Really good scene. <laughs> really
0: good. Scene. That, yeah. I feel like that was definitely like a moment where it was like more fantastical because you're like, that's not watertight. <laughs> but, um,
1: yeah. And like, well, it, clearly isn't because yeah. <laughs> there are some repercussions of yeah. them doing that um but um, just like
0: obviously the special effects are amazing and like afterwards i was just thinking because i i was writing my review kind of shortly after i'd seen justice league and that has like some just atrocious underwater scenes because they have this brief sequence with aquaman and it it's like not so like all of the kind of the gravity and the way water moves and stuff is just not convincing. It just looks really bad, but it's also astoundingly murky and there's all these like bubbles everywhere and stuff, and it just looks no. awful. And it's also no, really no, hard no. to see what's going on. And like it was so bad that the director of the actual Aquaman movie had to tweet, ours isn't going to look like this because <laughs> obviously <laughs> it like wasn't. It was by like Zack Snyder. They filmed a bunch of other Aquaman scenes and then got cut, presumably because if you watch it, you're just like, this is a deeply unpleasant experience. Meanwhile, The Shape of Water looked beautiful, and probably it cost, in its entirety, less than the budget for Superman's moustache, so, yeah. <laughs> Oh my god.
1: Oh, everything is such a nightmare. Um, yeah, well, don't watch Justice League. Yeah. Watch this film yeah. I am
0: I am so keen for this to come out in the UK. It's been a long wait. I want to see it again. It's out in, like, February. It's-
1: it's February, yeah. right? Yeah. God, UK film distribution is such a clusterfuck. Um, but yeah, there are lots. there's lots of good stuff out. Yeah. Go see this. Go see Calling By Your Name. Go see Lady Bird. It's
0: Oscar season. And unlike, I think, last year, I feel like I remember last year being pretty underwhelmed by a lot of the films that everyone was watching and being like, it's an Oscar film. This year, it's great. Loads of options.
1: I, I loved last year. The year before that was bad. Maybe, last year maybe was that's, great. Maybe it was the
0: year before that I'm remembering.
1: The year before I had Mad Max. And not a lot else. Last year was Moonlight, man. Oh no, of course. Like and Manchester by the Sea. And it was La, La Land was unfortunately omnipresent. But last year was a great year for film. But this year I think is this an astonishing year. Like I have seen so many movies that I thought were like perfect. Um so I'm very pleased. Yeah, if you haven't listened yet, that.
0: check out Hel Me By Your Name podcast. Which was oh, I, a really good episode, I think.
1: Yeah. I think we said I agree. it's smart. anyway thank you for listening as always uh we have just set up an email address at overinvested podcast at gmail.com so if you have any questions or suggestions or complaints about our audio quality which we know that many of you do feel free to send them there although i don't think there's much we can do at this particular moment about making ourselves louder it sort of is what it is well we can hopefully we can
0: in fact we can if we can go really? back. Really? Yeah. Well, that's that's the reason why I'm saying select some episodes where we're too quiet because we can re-upload the episodes and make them loud.
1: Ah, uh, I meant about the the current situation. But yes, oh, yeah. older ones we can we yeah. can. If try there's an old episode them. where
0: you can't listen to us in your phones and it's too quiet, email us, message us, we will boost it.
1: Yes, uh, we will attempt to to rectify all problems. Otherwise, if you enjoyed this episode, we would greatly appreciate a rating or review on iTunes. It's how we find new listeners. You can find us at overinvestedpodcast.com, on Twitter at overinvestedpod, or on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast. Thanks. Bye.